Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by Jacqueline Jung, Assistant Professor of Medieval Art and Architecture at Yale University. Her talk is entitled, Some Strange Region of the Universe, Material Things in the Gothic Cathedral. This is the fifth in the 2010 series of Frankie Lectures on the Age of Cathedrals. You know, when, out of my delight in the beauty of the house of God, the loveliness of the many-colored gems calls me away from external cares, and worthy meditation induces me to reflect, transferring that which is material to that which is immaterial on the diversity of the sacred virtues, then it seems to me that I find myself dwelling, as it were, in some strange region of the universe, which exists neither entirely in the slime of the earth nor entirely in the purity of heaven, and that by the grace of God, I can find myself transported there from this lower to that superior realm in an anagogical manner. Whew. Now, when Abbot Suger wrote his thoughts while looking at the many-colored gems of his newly re re uh, renovated Abbey Church at Saint-Denis, including, uh, perhaps, this beautiful chalice, which is now in Washington, uh, D.C., at the National Gallery, uh, he could hardly have foreseen that it would turn into something of a mantra for students and apologists of Gothic architecture more than 800 years later. It was really uh, written in a tract, as you know by now, that was intended for a very small-scale viewing, uh, reading audience uh, con consisting of the brothers of, uh, of Saint-Denis. Uh, above all, uh, scholarly readers and commentators have been inclined to see in this passage a paradoxical combination of an attachment on the one hand to bright, sparkly, glittery stuff, something that a lot of commentators have attributed to Suger's status as an ambitious and somewhat shallow nouveau riche administrator, uh, and uh, a purported affinity on the part of Suger uh, for Neoplatonic mysticism, which seeks precisely to escape from the bright and sparkly and into a rarefied realm that's been purified of worldly images and material things. The way that his Abbey Church stands today stripped of uh, a lot of the colors that animated it at once and largely devoid of clutter you can see from this image that even the altars in the ambulatory are reduced to a kind of minimalist, starkly geometrical form of installation. Uh, and certainly the way that this and other contemporary churches are typically presented in published photographs, like this canonical shot, reinforces the sense of Gothic architecture as an architecture of fluid space, of clean lines, and kind of pure luminosity. A lot of research into the design of Gothic buildings, as you probably know, is presently centering around what scholars call the dynamic geometry of the buildings, showing how the underlying systems of proportions, invisible to the eye but sensible as you move through the space, reflect a kind of interest in the geometry uh, of the heavenly spheres and of the heavenly Jerusalem and so forth. Now, this kind of image may have been the ideal of Bernard of Clairvaux and other advocates of austerity in religious architecture in the 12th century and beyond. But I suspect that Suger and most men and women of the Middle Ages, of the later Middle Ages anyway, would have found this kind of interior, at least this, this form of the Gothic interior that we now see it in, profoundly alienating because they were much more used to seeing spaces that looked like this. Here you're standing in approximately the same, uh, the same place in the church, going into the ambulatory uh, of the very large parish church of St. Lawrence uh, in Nuremberg, which retains a great deal of its late medieval uh, furnishings and accoutrements moved around um, over the, the intervening centuries, but still fairly indicative of the way that Gothic churches were experienced by their original users. Gothic cathedrals, monastic churches, except for the Cistercians, collegiate churches, and even parish churches were simply filled with stuff. 
The space that we tend to perceive as flowing and luminous was not in fact unitary, but very much fragmented both by altars that were situated at various points throughout the church that could sort of multiply over time as people gave donations for them, by screens and curtains and other ephemeral things, uh, and certainly by paintings and sculptures that were often associated with altars, but that really served, aside from identifying these places as sites of the holy, to arrest people as they were moving through the space, to make them stop, look, pray, think about the saints, think about their family members or friends who had commissioned the altar and so forth. So they're places of movement, but also places that are punctuated by lots and lots of material things. During masses themselves, of course, the altars were supported by lots of ritual paraphernalia uh, as well. Here you're seeing a, a fragmentary uh, panel by uh, a, a master, uh, an, an un unknown master known as the Master of San Gio from around 1500, uh, imagining a scene at the Abbey Church of Saint Denis in what for him would have been sort of olden times, a couple hundred years earlier. The scene really reflects aesthetic norms and ritual practices that had been in place since the days of Suger. It's the material aspects of Gothic uh, architecture and art that I want to explore today in this talk, even if necessarily I can only do so in a way that is hardly comprehensive and, uh, alas, all too superficial. I want to look at the stuff that made the church for Suger and surely others precisely not a pure and abstract vision of heaven, but as a strange space a heady space that partook of both worlds, that gave people a foretaste of paradise, something very different from their normal workaday environments, through solid elemental materials, uh, materials that were perceived not by the intellect, but through the bodily senses. So I want to take Suger's sort of neither nor idea of the Gothic interior and make that into a positive aspect, to look at the space as something that encompasses both worlds while really falling uh, squarely into neither. I want to start here, uh, going on the basis of this painting, with this liturgical, liturgical stuff, the paraphernalia around the altar. Uh, it will help if I can keep my, my mouse plugged in here. Excuse me for a moment. Here we go. There we go. So um, this, the painting is marvelous for really giving a remarkably accurate view of some of the liturgical paraphernalia that we know existed in this church for hundreds of years and was destroyed, melted down during the French Revolution. So I'm going to be showing you comparanda that come from other, other places uh, of necessity. Uh, in any case, sort of starting at the top uh, of this painting here, we find this magnificent uh, gemmed cross. Uh, not unlike a smaller altar cross which survives uh, now in Cologne. Now, and these are the sorts of things that he probably was thinking of when he wrote about the loveliness of the many-colored gems calling him away from worldly cares and so forth. As a learned man, Suger no doubt knew the scientific wisdom according to which jewels were living things, um, sort of like plants or petrified wood in a way. People saw them as water-based substances that were capable of growth and that above all possessed certain quasi-magical powers, virtus, a kind of inner spirit that could affect certain changes in the outside world, that could affect he uh, healing, for example, when applied to the body uh, or mixed with certain kinds of beverages. Uh, they could be talismanic uh, and so forth. Um, according to conventional wisdom of the day, all gems uh, and precious metals like gold as well, had their origins ultimately in the rivers that flowed from Eden at the very beginning of the world. And people also knew that these gemstones and gold and so forth would form the basis of the New Jerusalem at the end of time. The Book of Revelations describes the gemstones that appear on the walls of the heavenly city in detail. So they were fitting materials for the appurtenances of altars. Uh, as well as for liturgical books that uh, stood on top of these, that contained the word of God, that were used by the priests in the course of liturgies, uh, as well as 
fitting uh, sort of containers for saintly bodies. The bodies of the saints uh, after the resurrection were often likened to precious stones. And people tended to anticipate what these marvelous resurrection bodies would look like in the precious reliquaries they made to house their local saints' fragmentary remains on altars. You're seeing here the earliest such relic figural reliquary to survive, the reliquary of St. Foy in Conk, um, consisting of a wooden core that dates to the ninth century, a uh, first layer of gold from around that time, and various gems, medals, and cameos that were added to the figure over the course of subsequent centuries. Um, so all of this is connected with the jewels that we find on the cross in this, uh, this panel, uh, as well as the materiality of the altarpiece in front, front of which uh, this priest raises the host. Uh, an altarpiece that originally was made to go on the frontal surface of the altar block itself. Uh, so lower down around waist level, it seems to have been converted in this image to something like a retable that stands behind the altar. Uh, and looks very much in its construction, these repoussé figures of the majestic Christ, the insertion of enamels and gems into the metal plates, uh, very much like the kinds of products that were coming out of the Moise Valley around the, in the later years of the 12th century, such as the Great Shrine of the Three Magi by Nicholas of Verdun and his team, which is now in Cologne Cathedral. Um, so gems and gold and glittery things were beautiful and even transcendent objects in churches, as Suger makes clear, but they were also materials that connected people to paradise in a much more literal way. They were parts of paradise, both reminders of a paradise lost and anticipations of a paradise to be regained within the church building itself. Now, what else do we see in the image by the Master of San Gilles? We find the priest's own body becoming a kind of beautiful uh, image through uh, his wearing of this uh, beautifully embroidered vestment, this cassock, which faces the congregants uh, behind him, or would have faced the congregants in a normal church oriented uh, toward the east. Um, numerous vestments uh, that are similar to this survive with golden threads. Here's a beautiful example of one from the late Middle Ages preserved in the treasury at Estergam in Hungary, where we find these sort of paper mache and embroidery figures of the Madonna uh, and other uh, holy uh, women and men lining the big cross that forms the back. So the priest turning his back to the congregation, lifting up the host behind him, becomes through his garments a kind of holy image and a beautiful part of the church. We also find uh, in this image, uh, if we look here over the, uh, over the book that is on the altar, uh, beyond the altarpiece, that there is a screen that separates um, the priest uh, and uh, the other people within the space from the choir proper. You can see that here. Men are pouring in from the door, from one space to the other. Interestingly enough, laymen coming from the sanctuary uh, into the outer zone. Um, and we also find, let me just see if I can go back to this full image. Here we go. Um, so a screen here and other ephemeral objects that may, are made to beautify and enhance the space. A curtain here, normally apparently pulled around the altar. This is a practice documented in a lot of Gothic churches of the late Middle Ages, being pulled back at the moment of consecration so that the king here at his prie dieu can see the body of Christ being elevated. Uh, we have candles being raised to illuminate this, this moment. I know that Rob Nelson has talked with you about light in, uh, in medieval churches, and candles are a very, very crucial and often overlooked component of Gothic uh, space, Gothic architecture and its conditions of visibility. Uh, and far up here, uh, along the clerestory, or just under the clerestory level of the choir, we find different curtains hanging here, providing brilliant colors within that architectural environment, uh, as well as functional objects that would serve to contain sound better. Acoustical elements of Gothic space are also important to consider. All of these things, uh, again, made the church interior uh, a place of beauty, a kind of sensorial pleasure palace that displayed the majesty of the divine through gorgeous and ever-changing uh, things. But what really made the church strange uh, in Suger's sense was the presence of things 
whose status, or sort of ontological status, was trickier to define, things that were largely hidden behind these gorgeous outfittings. Uh, and these were, to put it bluntly, dead bodies. Now, we can see in the painting by the Saint-Gilles uh, master, one element of the Saint-Denis choir that is still, uh, still familiar uh, and visible to us, and that is this tomb uh, of King Dagobert, uh, who was later the, one of the first kings of France, later sainted, um, and uh, his shrine, basically sort of micro-architectural shrine, stands here in the crossing of the church. You see it painted here uh, in great sort of meticulous uh, detail. The Church of Saint-Denis, as you know, was the great um, necropolis, the burial grounds of the French kings. And while it occupied as such a privileged status in France, it was certainly not alone in the wider picture of Europe in serving this kind of function. Um, we find uh, a similar function, oh, excuse me, uh, I guess we'll have to zip through these, uh, a similar function being served by the great uh, church, uh, the great cathedral, the Bavel Cathedral in Krakow, um, the burial place of French royalty. And I was just thinking about this church uh, recently, of course, um, after the horrible tragedy uh, with the Polish president. Next uh, Sunday, uh, President Kaczynski and his wife will be buried here in Wawel Cathedral with the, the, the royals uh, from the Middle Ages uh, in Poland. Here you're seeing one of the 14th century tombs uh, of a Polish king uh, in that space, along with my mom, uh, who may or may not be here in the audience. Um, the Church of St. Elizabeth at Marburg, uh, which uh, you see a part of here, uh, had a special space cordoned off for the burial of the uh, local noble sort of ducal family and their spiritual advisors uh, and friends, where everybody uh, received their own um, sort of elevated tomb, much like the, the tombs at Saint-Denis. Uh, whether it was these kind of grandiose spaces set aside for members of a distinct existing community or more ad hoc burials uh, in the aisles of churches, wherever people could find room for, uh, for themselves, uh, or uh, elsewhere, if they, people wound up in the ossuary uh, underneath the, the pavement uh, of the cathedral, uh, people visiting churches knew that they, the living, were only one set of inhabitants there. That's just at these for the moment, uh, that they were joined from within the church by these elevated tombs and from below the pavement by the dead, who were still active members of the community. The dead were powerful presences within the Gothic church, and around their bodies, different layers of time collapsed together. The tombs served on the one hand as instruments of memory, thus pointing back to the past, the days when these individuals actually lived, preserving the memories of these people uh, and their clans. They thus brought the past materially and physically into the present. They pointed forward toward the future uh, as well, for medieval Christians knew that when Christ made his second appearance at the end of time, the dead were going to rise again with their bodies intact. This meant that when people thought ahead to that point, they could imagine these churches filled with all the dead whose tombs resided there, and who were buried in their proximity, people who would get a kind of closer view uh, of the altar uh, and they hoped uh, of, of the Lord from this privileged place. Finally, these sorts of tombs made demands on people in the present demands for prayers and masses to be said in honor of the dead within, because according to the contemporary beliefs, the pious activities that the living performed at any point in time could help the dead of the past get out of purgatory more quickly, this place of expiation for their sins uh, committed during life. Uh, now, illuminated manuscripts, above all books of hours, which contain prayers to, uh, to be said on behalf of the dead, um, make this connection really explicit uh, and give us a glimpse into the way that people imagined Gothic spaces to work. Uh, in this very beautiful page from a 15th century uh, French, Franco-Flemish book of hours, we find uh, the Gothic interior uh, in the midst of liturgical activity in this upper zone uh, we find the bier of a deceased person covered with a beautiful blue, a kind of royal uh, cloth, uh, as a priest uh, elevates the host during the funerary mass uh, in honor of that person. 
Uh, meanwhile, another one of the persons, presumably his friends, distributes alms on behalf of the dead to beggars outside the church door uh, as cowled brothers sing, uh, sing the litany. In the meantime, below the pavement of the church, uh, a series of nude people, men as well as women, one of them tonsured, indicating that he's a cleric, tumble about in the fires of purgatory. So purgatory, in this view, is conceived of as a place, a distinct place, one moreover that's right underneath the floor of the church. Uh, the, the suffering soul in purgatory is undergoing his or her torments, according to this, in close proximity to his or her body. And the proper performance uh, and timely performance of rituals and good deeds can help these people get out from their, their dark lair and move up through the space of the church into the heavenly, uh, the heavenly realm where they will await uh, last judgment or they will await the second coming under more comfortable uh, conditions. This makes of the church interior a space through which souls are continually on the move. In the course of rituals, I, based on this, would imagine that people were imagining the movement of souls upward from the ground, through the air, led by invisible angels who were always imagined to be present at liturgy, and through the space above. Again, this gives the whole area contained within the walls of the cathedral a very kind of thick and active uh, quality. Uh, the, the, the space of the church is a place of anticipation of future resurrection and a place of relief. Now, if the living were not performing their rituals in the church uh, in a way that was satisfactory to the dead, uh, the latter could take matters into their own hands according to certain popular uh, traditions. Here you see a wing of an altarpiece uh, from Bern Cathedral in Switzerland made around 1500. Um, showing uh, an episode uh, in which a, a church a night watchman goes to visit the church that he's in charge of uh, to find that the dead have all, already risen from their tombs and are busy within the church space. They're pouring here from behind the choir screen to the altars, dressing up in liturgical vestments and performing memorial rites for themselves, kind of desperate self-help effort on the part uh, of the dead, making the church interior a very strange space uh, indeed. Uh, you'll notice here too that uh, at nighttime we find uh, a woman uh, praying, actually properly saying prayers uh, in front of this group of kind of pathetically <laughs> sort of imploring skulls uh, in an ossuary of the kind that I showed you earlier. Now, of course, the living were not just in the business of helping others, but also, and probably more often, uh, they went to church as a means of getting help for themselves. You see uh, this uh, use of the church space coming to view in uh, a predella panel, that is of the oblong panel that goes uh, underneath an altarpiece on top of an altar. Um, you see crowds of people in various forms of dis distress and ailment pressing around a large block that contains a saint's uh, body in hopes of being cured. Um, here we can recognize um, a madman uh, being forcibly brought to the tomb uh, a woman with her injured child, um, a, uh, a knight probably returning from crusade. Um, seems to me there was somebody holding up a severed hand back here. Where is that? Mm. Oh, here we go. Yes, a man holding up his severed hand and so forth, coming to pray at the, at the saint's shrine. Uh, this is precisely the kind of scene that Abbot Suger evokes when he's describing why the Abbey Church of Saint-Denis needs to be rebuilt in the first place. Uh, those of you who have read the account of his administration uh, We'll recall the great scene where he describes something like a big mosh pit of people crammed together, desperate to get close to, uh, to the tomb of the saint. Uh, in any case, this is still being evoked uh, in the early 16th century. Um, just go back so we see a full view of this. Now, so people were coming to churches to see the bodies of what scholars call the very special dead, the saints. Um, here you see uh, a, a saintly figure laid out uh, in a tomb in the town of Fribourg in Switzerland, which is also where this panel from by Hans Fries is as well. The bodies of the very special dead played an important role in making space strange. 
that is, and bringing a bit of heaven down to earth. And obviously a rich visual culture developed around them from the very outset. Now, admittedly, in the 13th and 14th centuries, the heyday of Gothic architecture, people typically did not dress up their, the skeletal remains of the saints in the way that they did in the Baroque period, which is, where this, which is when this particular figure uh, is from. Uh, but they chose rather to celebrate the fragmentariness uh, of, uh, of the holy dead. Um, so, for example, in the numerous arm reliquaries that survive, here you see uh, an arm of St. Elizabeth of Thuringia um, expressing its wholeness, its solidity, its kind of heavenly, jewel-like quality um, through its overall contours, its shape, its weight, but at the same time broadcasting the status of the fragment within through this little window opening through which you can see uh, the bone of the forearm um, that inhabits the piece. Um, here, oops, two, uh, two views of a finger of Saint Elizabeth, the same, uh, the same saint, decked out in their form-fitting reliquaries and outfitted with rings. Um, here, what looks like a chalice, but is actually the reliquary made for Saint Elizabeth's skull, uh, which had been, I uh, believe that this, um, this particular casing was made uh, in Sweden uh, when the skull was translated there. It's now in Russia at, uh, at the Hermitage. Now, since the sixth century, all altars of churches had to have saints' relics inside in order to be consecrated. So this meant that even if the piece was just a lock of hair or a bit of a tooth, the saint who dwelled spiritually in heaven was closely connected to the place and could claim it as his or her home. Conversely, the people in charge of that church or who went there regularly could claim that building as the home of that saint and others. Now, according to medieval theology, as you probably know, unlike ordinary people who had to face some amount of time in purgatory, the saint's souls went immediately to heaven after death, where they enjoyed close companionship uh, with God himself. This is why they're such powerful intercessors on behalf of the living. The only thing that put a damper on their happiness and made them take any interest in the earth at all was that they missed their bodies which, like all others, would not be reconstituted until the end of time. Um, the whole old stereotype about the Middle Ages being a, a time uh, of antipathy toward the body is really belied by this theology, uh, according to which, again, the saints yearn to have their, body back, their, their bodies back because they can't fully experience heaven until they can do so physically. Now, this meant for these uh, religious communities that if you had a piece of the saint's body, in your church, no matter how small, you had to take very good care of it. It contained all the power of the entire saint, and it was the object of his or her desire. The saint worked miracles through it on behalf of humanity and behalf of good caretakers, but he or she also wanted it and would eventually get it back. So this makes for, for these churches that contained often numerous, sometimes hundreds of relics inside of them, this transformed the space again into a powerful zone of contact with heaven. The saints remained connected to the earth and the living through the body parts that were stored there. And that intervening space becomes the space of desire between the saints in heaven and the body parts below. Now, some churches were designed strictly to highlight this arrangement, and one of these is the church um, uh, whose patron is the woman whose body parts you've been looking at just now, St. Elizabeth uh, of Thuringia. You see a sculpture of her here, um, holding her church in Marburg. Um, here, uh, an exterior shot of the building. You can see uh, in, this, um, in this sculpture uh, that she holds it here as, uh, as her attribute, in a way. You can see that the choir, the two rounded transepts, also visible in the architecture, the two tall towers in front. This is actually, I bring this up uh, in here, both because it's interesting in terms of uh, the, saints, the saint that it contains, but also because it ties in with your class. Uh, in the sense that it's one of the earliest buildings in Germany to really demonstrate a close connection with French prototypes, one of the very earliest um, really French-type Gothic churches um, in, uh, in, the, in the empire. 
Um, in any case, when you look at the statue of St. Elizabeth, what becomes clear is that the church is less an attribute uh, of her that, or, sorry, she is less something that belongs to the church than the church is something that belongs to her. Uh, the church itself is less important than the saint who holds onto it. This is the message you get repeatedly as you move through this building. Now, St. Elizabeth of Thuringia was um, especially alive in the minds of the people who constructed this church and uh, embellished it um, because she had been only dead for a few years at the time that this was started. Elizabeth was one of these living saints who was a contemporary of the architects who designed uh, and built the church, who was widely known by the earliest uh, pilgrims uh, who went there. Um, she was a young noblewoman who died in the year 1231, um, who after the death of her husband on crusade, cast aside her wealthy lifestyle and took to the streets of Marburg as a caretaker of the urban poor. She was kind of like the female version of St. Francis of Assisi, uh, but in the north. And she was canonized in 1235, uh, at which point this church began to be built. Um, again, she demonstrates the connection to her building um, in this, uh, this sculpture, which was made some time later. Going into the church, um, people would have had a chance to visit parts of her distributed in different areas of the building. Um, here you're seeing the frontal uh, portion uh, of uh, an altar that contained parts of her tomb. It's kind of elided with a tomb uh, itself. You find her represented here, um, whether in effigy or as an actual body uh, is unclear. Uh, she's laid out here on this bier, accompanied by Christ, uh, as well as by a group of saints. Uh, and visited down below uh, by a little group of beggars who have come, like the, the folks we saw in that painting, seeking her, uh, her assistance. They're sort of models for beholders who are going to come to this church in hopes of gaining something of Elizabeth's uh, power. Uh, it's sort of interesting because this is actually a moment where you see her soul ascending from her mouth, so it is meant to represent her on her deathbed. We know from numerous written reports of the t at the time uh, of crowds of people, in fact, gathering around her deathbed just waiting for her to finally expire so they could start cutting her up for relics. Um, and she, in fact, is recorded as having started to bequeath certain parts of her body to certain special friends. Like, you get my finger, no, no, you, I want you to have my ear, and so on and so forth. Um, so she's really widely dispersed around Europe and also dispersed within this church uh, made in her honor. Uh, so this particular um, portion is located in a little shrine uh, in one of the transepts that would have been available and accessible to pilgrims even when other liturgies uh, were going on. Um, there was another shrine that was used on, uh, on her feast day and other special occasions um, into which her relics or certain relics of her body were placed um, after she was, uh, she was exhumed um, some 20 years or so after her death. Um, so certain of her bones are in here, this very beautiful, very large scale um, shrine that places her body in the company of the apostles and of Christ uh, himself and calls attention to her own identity as a social worker, in a sense, um, through a series of reliefs narrating different episodes in her life that would become canonical. St. Elizabeth giving alms uh, and food to the poor and needy, um, St. Elizabeth giving up her clothes and taking on a hair shirt, uh, and so on and so forth. So things that both emphasize her individuality and set her in this larger um, framework uh, of the saints. Now these same images were seen uh, in stained glass windows that also uh, embellished this, again, French Gothic style church. We find many of the same episodes. Here she is tending the sick uh, and so forth. Um, as at the Seine-Chapelle, these windows are not terribly easy to read uh, unless you're really looking for them. They're meant to be also seen from, from far away. So people who were well-versed in the story of the saint could have easily pointed out the images to folks looking from a distance. This particular lancet, which has these images of St. Elizabeth's life, is located within the choir 
an area of the church that was not accessible to most pilgrims, so it would have been to uh, clergy and to lay people who were part of uh, Elizabeth's inner circle. Uh, but they were visible through um, this large screen that again separates the two spaces. Um, it seems as if the screen makes that choir a very, very exclusive space, one that is designed, as so many commentators have thought, to shut out the lay, lay folk from the objects uh, of their, their desire. But in fact, if you look closely, or if you go up to the screen, uh, as people certainly would have done, uh, you find these apertures that are built into the walls that allow for these very tightly framed and controlled views or glimpses, both of the stained glass windows. Here you see that whole lancet with the Elizabeth life visible through one of these little apertures and the shrine, another shrine uh, on the high altar. Uh, but again, most people who visited this church didn't really care much about what went on behind the screen because they had access to the saints' relics in various forms at other places in the church itself. Now, these sorts of choir screens, you see here a beautiful 14th century example from a church in, uh, in Oberwesel. Uh, and the kind of focused viewing that they demanded were once ubiquitous components of Gothic architecture even though, at least in France, the vast majority were removed or destroyed in the modern era, victims of changing tastes that privileged open, clean views of the church interior, and victims of changing liturgical needs, which um, in more modern times place a premium on full audience participation in all the rites. In other words, the divine office, once the divine office was not being performed anymore, there was no reason to uh, cordon off a special area for the clergy. Um, Chartres Cathedral, which I know you've studied uh, in some detail, uh, contained really one of the, the largest and what must have been most spectacular choir screens that we know of, uh, surviving only in uh, some fragments of the sculptural reliefs and in uh, pretty accurate um, drawings uh, that uh, were made in the 17th century before its destruction. Um, and the Church uh, of Notre Dame in Paris, of course, does not retain its transverse screen, such as the one here at Oberwesel, but does, as you probably know, still retain these side enclosures with their beautiful narrative images of Christ's childhood uh, and resurrection uh, scenes. So these remind us of the ways that Gothic space was really meant to be partitioned in its original, uh, in its original uh, form. Um, these screens served as partitions, as I've mentioned, creating separate spaces for clergy so that they could perform the, their rites uninterrupted by the lay people who were circulating around through the nave and the ambulatory uh, and conducting other sorts of business there. They also served as bridges between those spaces. Um, here, and I'll give you this example just from Oberwesel uh, of the bridge-like uh, function um, here, you're looking uh, at the screen now from inside the choir area. We've moved through these doors uh, and into the choir. Um, and you can see, if you look closely through this Gothic tracery work, uh, stairs that are actually built into the body of the screen. It's a deep structure. Um, I guess uh, right now they, people use this narrower set uh, built into the sides. But in any case, there's a, there's a stairway here um, that if you're sneaky enough uh, to try to do this, you can go up with your camera uh, and you find yourself then on this platform uh, area on top of the screen, um, which creates avenues of communication for people in the nave as well as for people in the choir. And there seem to have been lots of kind of call and response um, scenarios in the course of the liturgy with people planted on top of that screen and broadcasting their voices out to both sides. In the case of Oberwesel, we find a built-in lectern uh, here. Most of these that survive actually face uh, the nave area where the congregants stood. In this case, it faces the choir, uh, overlooking this beautiful uh, carved altarpiece that you'll see again more closely. They also, along with serving as partitions and bridges, served as backdrops for masses for people uh, for lay people standing in the nave. Uh, almost always there was a, an altar dedicated to the Holy Cross, positioned uh, centrally in front of the screen, and 
two or more other secondary uh, or tertiary altars positioned to either side along the solid back wall. You get a good view of the depth of the screen from this oblique image. Uh, and it was here that lay people saw and participated fully in masses. You'll see paintings uh, of this uh, situation. Uh, soon. Um, they also served very powerfully as frames for the altarpieces and the high altar that lay beyond, still an important part uh, of people's views. So if you look through the central door of the Obervasel screen, part of it is closed here, but nonetheless you can see if it were all the way open, you would get a pretty clear view of the central portion of this large and very beautiful um, altarpiece, one of the earliest surviving winged altarpieces um, uh, made, of, uh, made of wood. As you can see, a beautiful, intricate use of microarchitectural forms where the most advanced um, forms of rayonant Gothic from the Ile de France are being transmitted into uh, the heart of this little German church uh, and juxtaposed with scenes of the apostles and scenes of Christ's uh, life and death. And it's here, of course, that the priest would be elevating the host and having it come to rest, in a sense, once it was raised in between the figures of Mary uh, and Christ at the top. Um, so the screen is fulfilling these various functions uh, as an object. It's also forming the support for the monumental crucifixion group. Sorry, I'm to zoom ahead again. That was the dominant figural image uh, in the Gothic cathedral. For a moment, we find again these large-scale crucifixion groups do not survive in C2 in France, but they still are present in a number of churches in Germany. Uh, examples from the uh, 13th century. Uh, these include the monumental group over the choir screen in Halberstadt Cathedral, uh, where Christ. This is actually the earliest one to survive in C2 from the early 13th century. Christ joined by Mary and John, as well as two seraphim. Um, here at the uh, Collegiate Church of, Church of Vexelburg in Saxony. Um, here a late Gothic example by Bernd Notke uh, in which um, the, the Christ and the mourners are joined by Mary Magdalene uh, and the bishop who, uh, who paid for this whole installation right here, uh, all of them looming over the congregation and the focal point uh, of the mass uh, and of other paraliturgical activities in the church. Rarely, these large-scale crucifixes were installed lower down. Uh, this is the case at Naumburg Cathedral, also in eastern Germany, where we find the body of Christ actually physically built into the door of the choir screen that survives there, attended by the mourning Mary uh, and John the Evangelist. Um, here is a space that really becomes strange through the insertion of this fictive body, um, a space in which any individual passing from one zone to the next has to become part of that crucifixion group and has to behold this body of Christ, which he is used to seeing at a distance as a kind of devotional object, transform before his or her eyes into something that looks very uncannily lifelike, as if it has a kind of subjective agency uh, to it and is looking down uh, straight at you. Um, the body of Christ in this form, in the sculptural form that looks real but is really fictive, and that exists in reality, according to medieval theology, in the form of the consecrated host, is really the most wonderful and strange thing or body within the Gothic cathedral, um, as I think most medieval uh, viewers and users of these spaces would agree. Um, we find this connection, this focus on the body of Christ and its weirdness um, brought to the fore with really unparalleled verve in the great altarpiece of the seven sacraments made by Roger van der Weyden around 1435. Um, here we really see the Gothic interior as this meeting point between heaven uh, and earth. Um, in this uh, central panel, you see uh, the sacraments being performed in the wings, attended uh, by angels, uh, always invisibly present. We unfortunately don't have time to get into them. Uh, we also see uh, back here a cordoned off space, another one of these screens that create separate spaces uh, for people. But what's really most remarkable uh, is the fact that the monumental crucifix, which people would have expected to see on top 
uh, of this central bay of the screen uh, has been transported um, as if magically into a space in the center of the nave where it looks in this fictive world of the painting like the real person. The boundaries between sculpture and reality um, are clearly blurred here. So it's tra traditional uh, crucifixion group replaced uh, at a different point in the church, attended as usual by Mary and John, but also by here a lay woman who is not one of the holy, uh, the holy women who uh, are attending over here, bridging the gap between these two wings and reaching out to touch the hands of the Virgin Mary. Uh, so the crucifix here is the space where reality and representation become very much blurred. The figure of Christ is both real and fictive at the same time. He is located on direct axis with this other powerful moment. Uh, of the convergence of realms, where the priest elevates the host, recites the words of consecration, and we know that this is the moment in which this little wafer becomes the actual body represented on the cross. Uh, you can see here the priest's vestments, again turning him into a kind of devotional image, uh, and the vestments are being picked up by this layman who kneels nearby carrying a long candle. Um, it's as if the, the priest himself becomes a kind of divine lightning rod, transmitting the power of the host, the divine that resides therein, down into the hands of the layman who touches him and looks up at it. Now, as the place where heaven and earth coincide, the altar in front of the screen or behind it is really the core object of any church, Gothic or otherwise. And it's no wonder that these altars develop the most spectacular visual accoutrements, many of which, like Roger's painting itself, um, itself designed to go on an altar um, in a kind of very sort of postmodern meta moment, um, now celebrated as masterworks of art and displayed in museums. Um, when altar pieces uh, remain in C2, they give a wonderful impression of how medieval or late medieval spaces really worked and why they struck observers as so otherworldly. Here you're looking into the wonderfully cluttered and lively interior of the Church of St. Mary in Krakow, Poland, um, where you look uh, across this threshold between nave and choir, there's no screen there uh, anymore, if there ever was one, underneath the arms of Christ within this beautifully uh, painted 19th century uh, version of the interior, um, look down the nave uh, towards the splendid altarpiece whose wings in this particular image are thrust open. If you go to St. Mary's today, um, in the morning, you will find the altarpiece closed and shuttered. Um, these are the exterior wings, which are embellished with narrative images in painted relief that read almost like a comic book uh, version of the crucifixion, very legible even from a distance. Um, this is the way most people would have seen this altarpiece during the regular year. But on feast days, something happened that is similar to what happens today, uh, every day at 11 o'clock, which is that somebody comes in. It's very hard to get pictures of this because there are so many people jostling for view. Um, a nun comes in and opens up the shutters. Just to give you a sense of scale, this is the woman who's standing here in front of the altar. And here is the altar itself. She's using a very large uh, pole to open up the doors. Uh, and looking inside, we see this magnificent tableau by the German sculptor Weit Stoss, uh, made in the 1480s. Um, the altar itself, uh, or the altarpiece itself, thematizes the death of the Virgin Mary. You see Mary here sinking downward, supported by the apostles who move around in elaborate and exuberant gestures of mourning. Uh, but as she moves down towards, uh, towards the earth, we find her soul depicted above her head uh, on the central axis, being joined by Christ and moving up, sort of led by this OG arch above their heads, led up into the heavenly sphere, which continues above the altar piece itself uh, into the crowning um, components of it, where eventually she is crowned queen of heaven by God the Father and the Son together with the Holy Spirit hovering uh, over them, backed by these luminous, huge stained glass windows. So what we find here 
uh, is this kind of anagogical uplift of the kind evoked by Suger, a movement from the body and from the material realm and the realm of emotions to the immaterial realm of light and spirit uh, and timelessness. A similar message and similar visual strategy comes to play in the great sacrament house uh, made by Weitstoss's contemporary Adam Kraft in the Church of St. Lawrence in Nuremberg, that same church uh, whose cluttered walls I showed you at the very beginning. Uh, this is made in the 1490s. Um, this is a structure that is made specifically to house that fragile little piece of bread, the consecrated host, so that it would be protected from people who would try to steal it uh, or do other sorts of nefarious, nefarious things to it, but also remain visible and present to people who wanted to come and partake of it simply uh, visually. Um, this particular um, structure is really uh, quite an amazing accomplishment, something that was marveled at even uh, in its own day. Uh, it's th it rises all the way up into the vaults of this extremely tall uh, building, uh, about 20 meters high. This is about 65 feet uh, tall. Uh, over the host, which is um, housed here in this lowest um, component, uh, in these elaborate micro-architectural niches, again drawing on the most cutting-edge forms of late Gothic architecture, um, we find relief sculptures that move us from the Last Supper, you can probably barely make out the Paschal Lamb here on the table, uh, up through uh, the betrayal and, uh, and torments of Christ uh, in the middle registers, to the crucifixion. I wish now that I had recorded exactly when I took this picture because the light is shining in from the Clara story to illuminate uh, that scene uh, over all the others. The crucifixion um, and finally uh, up above that as the structure gets skinnier and more delicate, um, a scene you can just make out Christ's raised right hand of the resurrection uh, before finally the figural images disappear uh, and we just have this um, sort of beautiful and intricate and very delicate curving uh, terminal to the entire structure. Um, again, then, we get this sort of upward movement from earth to heaven, suffering to joy, death to new life, matter to spirit. The whole structure um, is supported, uh, interestingly enough, on the back of the artist. It's one of the earliest self-portraits we have of a medieval sculptor uh, and his helpers who all crouch here uh, at ground level. And you can really get right up into their faces uh, and see them very closely. In fact, they, um, in a sense, feel like it seems like they're getting up in your face. They're extremely arresting as you walk nearby here. Men who, like their countless anonymous forebears, are connected to the slime of the earth very emphatically, but whose creations allow us to glimpse something uh, of the purity of heaven beyond normal experience. So in their intricate and often many-colored splendor, these and other liturgical furnishings and creations perpetually remind us that it's not just through the intellect which can comprehend the perfect geometry undergirding these buildings, visible, for example, in the repeating forms of the vaults at Saint-Denis and elsewhere, uh, but also through the delights of the senses and the experience of embodied viewing in these strange spaces that a little bit of heaven might be reached after all. I thank you at this point for your attention and welcome any questions that you might have. Thanks. The Frankie Lectures are made possible by the generosity of Richard and Barbara Frankie and are intended to present important topics in the humanities. This term, the series explores the making and meaning of the High Middle Ages with the Gothic Cathedral serving as a window on the religious, intellectual, and literary culture of the times. It is organized in conjunction with the Yale College Seminar taught by R. Howard Block, Sterling Professor of French and Chair of the Humanities Program. Jacqueline Young spoke on April 13, 2010 at the Whitney Humanities Center.